This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for September 24th, 2021. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up this week, contributing correspondent Lizzie Wade discusses preserved human footprints that push back the date for when people first arrived in the Americas by thousands of years into the last glacial maximum. Next, researcher Paolo Carabini talks about using dendrochronology, that's counting tree rings, to date and authenticate valuable musical instruments. Finally, in this month's installment of our series on race and science, guest host Angela Saini talks with author Alondra Nelson about her book, The Social Life of DNA, Race, Reparations, and Reconciliation After the Genome. Peopling of the Americas is a long-standing puzzle. The general outlines are in place. People from what is now called Siberia came over a land bridge and moved south. And the timing was thought to depend on the climate. Would people really be scrambling over miles of ice sheets during a glacial maximum? More likely, they came after the last glacial maximum. However, the archaeological evidence seems to be pushing back on that idea, especially over the past two decades. Contributing correspondent Lizzie Wade is here to talk about the latest push against that theory, a new science paper about preserved human footprints dated to thousands of years before the end of the last glacial maximum. Hi, Lizzie. Hi, Sarah. Where were these prints found? Obviously, we're talking about North America. Where were they? They are in White Sands National Park in New Mexico, which today is this really spectacular landscape of these white sand gypsum dunes. I mean, it's truly otherworldly. Mars researchers go there to <laughs> look at things. But in, in the deep past, this particular piece of white sands was kind of a lake, a wetland that probably depended on like the actual climate of that time or the season, you know, probably grew and shrunk over time. But basically, we're talking about a pretty inviting lake or series of ponds that people would have come to. So in White Sands, they've actually discovered tons and tons of animal footprints and human footprints. Some of the animal footprints are from now extinct megafauna like camels and giant ground sloths and mammoths. But until now, they haven't really had a really great footprint site that they could get precise dates from. And so they found one with the human footprints and the dates were in fact pretty surprising. 
how many footprints? You talked about camels, other megafauna. How many people have we seen there so far? This paper only talks about a fraction of what they've actually discovered at White Sands. But this paper is about 60 footprints over 2,000 years, I think. Some of them were left by the same person. Some of them were left by different people. Sometimes you can see people, sort of the same person walking a little ways. So I think it's somewhere around like 11 to 15 people left these footprints over the course of, of course, 2,000 years. So this is a, a while. And in these particular human footprints, there's also a couple of mammoth footprints and things. So it's a pretty interesting site. What do we know about the, you know, the identity of these footprint leavers? Yeah, so they were definitely people. I mean, frankly, when I learned about this paper, I was expecting to look at the photos and be like, yeah, maybe that's a footprint. Get out the computer models, you know, <laughs> but like these are definitely human footprints. You look at the photos and you're like, yes, these are people. And the preserved ancient human footprint experts that you consulted, more than one of them, also agree that these are footprints. Yes, they definitely agree. And it's a really stunning, stunning site. And again, this is just a small piece of it. Well, what can we tell from these footprints about the people? The footprint expert who's on the team thinks that these were most likely left by children and teenagers, mostly. I think there are a couple of adult footprints, but basically from the size of the footprints, you can like infer information about the size of someone's body and their weight and things like that. The authors argue that these mostly, most closely correspond to adolescents and younger children, which I think is just so delightful, you know, like imagining these ancient kids playing by a lake or like going to fetch water for the adults while the adults are busy hunting or whatever. You know, it's just a, a beautiful window onto the past. There is a little debate about whether these are teenagers or just very young adults or very small adults. So, you know, we'll we'll see what people think in the future. But for now, it's the argument is that they're they're mostly teenagers, which I love. How do we know how old these are? How do you date a preserved footprint? Yeah, so there are a couple of possible methods. The one that the researchers have used here is radiocarbon dating, which is widely considered to give you the most accurate dates in the past. But of course, for radiocarbon dating, you need organic material, something with carbon in it. And in this case, they have, I mean, it's just an astounding stroke of luck. They have layers of seeds in between the layers of the footprints. So the footprints will be in one layer, and then there'll be a couple of other layers of earth and then there there'll be a layer of seeds and then there'll be more footprints above that. And what does the dating show about their age? Dating shows that they were left between 23,000 years ago and 21,000 years ago. And that might not sound like that big of a difference from like 16,000 years ago, which is like the kind of more or less <laughs> accepted oldest ages in the Americas for now. But the key, as you mentioned in the intro, is how this corresponds to these other environmental changes. So 23,000 to 21,000 years ago, Canada was covered in glaciers and nobody was getting through. So the implication is they had to have come before the last glacial maximum reached its peak, at least. And that doesn't necessarily mean that other people didn't come later, but it does push back the story of the peopling of the Americas, or at least that's what the authors are saying to before the last glacial maximum instead of afterwards. I'm assuming that there are some people who are going to disagree with this. And from your story, it sounds like the main point of contention there will be, well, are these seeds really directly related to the time that these people were alive and walking or are they somehow from a different place? Yeah. So 
Peopling of the Americas, to your first point, has long been a really contentious subject among archaeologists. The exact timing and like which cultural package of stone tools and things came first in the Americas has been just a huge debate that's fossilized in its own way at various points in its history. So for a long time, people really thought that people had not come to the Americas until the glaciers were like fully melting. And that was around like 13,000 years ago, 13,500 years ago. And that was called the Clovis first hypothesis. And while some people still think that's the correct interpretation, I would say most archaeologists now recognize that there are people who had come to the Americas before that, probably by traveling down the coast. But every time you want to push back the date of the people in the Americas, it's bound to cause a lot of debate and come up for a lot of criticism and a lot of scrutiny. And of course, that's how science works and advances. Obviously, we've got these human footprints, unquestionably human presence. So the question is sort of hinges on the dates, right? How, how old are they? And there are a couple of different possibilities here. Basically, the big question would be if the seeds are, as I said, this was kind of a dynamic environment with this lake shrinking and growing and the shores of bodies of water are, are pretty dynamic and constantly changing places. So it's possible some older seeds got washed out of the lake at some point and they're not dated to that exact, the seeds were not alive at that exact moment and they're actually older than the footprints. We'll see. There probably needs to be more, more testing of the dates. I'm sure there will be. Are they in order? So if you sample from a couple thousand years worth of footprints layered up on top of each other, wouldn't the seed dates be in chronological order? They are in order. They're in quite precise order. And the researchers have done tests on other areas of the lake bed to see how these sort of aquatic plants, the dates of these aquatic plants correspond to dates of terrestrial charcoal and things like that. So Sometimes you get some weird effects with radiocarbons with things that were in water for a long time. They've done pretty good controls, but while people are in a general agreement that this is definitely the best evidence presented so far that people were in the Americas before the last ice age or the last glacial maximum, not everybody's quite ready to throw out the existing paradigm and get on this new train quite yet. So there aren't any tools here or other artifacts to back up this finding. The dating is quite precise and strong, you know, as far as it goes. The footprints clearly show humans, but yeah, there's not really anything else, right? Like there's no stone tools, there's no artifacts, there's, they haven't found a campsite yet, for example, where these people were presumably hunter-gatherers. So like where were they living around this lake? You know, I'm sure they're looking for those things now and hopefully they'll find them and, and that will reveal more. But as, as of right now, we just have people walking across this muddy lake shore and then leaving just one clue to their presence and hopefully more will be found. Yeah. How does the date here, 21,000 to 23,000 years ago, match up with some of the other archaeological evidence that's been uncovered in the Americas, indicating this earlier arrival? Is anything in line with these dates? Yeah, there's been a couple of findings sort of scattered across the Americas, but a lot of these sites also suffer from a similar problem in that most of them only have one line of evidence and that line of evidence, some archaeologists question it. So there's a cave in Mexico and sort of central Mexico and Zacatecas state where archaeologists say they found stone tools that date to at least 27,000 years ago. So that's would sort of similarly indicate that people would have had to make it to the Americas before the ice sheets blocked them. 
Yeah. And what about my favorite, which is Monteverde in Chile? There's some quite old dates at Monteverde that are possible, like 18,500, which is a little course, younger than this. so far down. But but it's like all the way at the tip of South America. (laughs) Yeah. So, so there's possibility there that that could fit in. But again, these sort of very old dates so far have mostly been based on claims for stone tools and different kinds of artifacts. And not all archaeologists believe that the stone tools that are claimed for those ages are actually stone tools or whether they're just like rocks that have been fractured in other ways, like by a geological process. So it's sort of the reverse. The dates on the other sites are very strong, but the evidence for human presence is less strong. And in this case, there are definitely people walking around here. And the question remains slightly open. You know, when was that? Going back to New Mexico, what can be done to shore up those dates? Are there other approaches they can take with the material that we actually have since we don't have tools or phones or anything like that? Yeah, some archaeologists I talked to suggested trying something called optically simulated luminescence dating, which essentially shows you the last time a quartz grain has been exposed to light so you can like see when it was buried. So that could potentially date the sediment in and around the footprints themselves rather than the seeds in between them. The trouble with OSL dating, as it's called, is that it's not quite as precise as radiocarbon. But of course, if you had both, that would definitely shore up and confirm each other, reinforce each other. What was the tenor of the comments that you got? Were people pretty excited about this? People were quite excited. Yeah. Everyone really applauded the authors for their very careful work. And it does seem to be the best evidence so far that humans were possibly in the Americas before the last ice age. It's just that it really would change the whole story of the peopling of the Americas. And it would change how archaeologists in the Americas looking at these time periods would do their jobs. Right now, they're not really going after 20,000-year-old sediment to look for signs of people because they don't think it's going to be there. So if that story ends up being different than what they think now, it'll have huge implications for archaeology across both continents. And to make a really big claim like that, it takes a lot of evidence, you know, so this is the best so far. But I think people are eager for more. All right. Thank you so much, Lizzie. Thanks, Sarah. Lizzie Wade is a contributing correspondent for science. You can find a link to the article we discussed and the related research at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for a chat with researcher Paolo Carabini about using tree rings to date million-dollar violins. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there's no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, upload your resume or CV to the searchable database, or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. The science of using tree rings to estimate the age of a tree or a piece of wood is called dendrochronology. This technique has been used to date many things from paintings to ships. 
This Week in Science, Paolo Carabini wrote an Insight article on using dendrochronology to help authenticate valuable instruments like violins. Hi, Paolo. Hi, Sarah. This approach to dating violins has been around for quite a while now. Why are you writing about this today? Yes. So dating and also this is called dendroproveniency. So establishing the source has been done since the beginning of the 80s. But over the past two decades, where several instruments dated not in a sure way, and so the violin community was confused by controversial dating of uh, different violins. The most famous is the Messiah, made by Stradivari 1716. In this perspective, I try to explain what dendrochronology can do and what dendrochronology can't do. What is your background that you ended up working on violins, but from this perspective of uh, dendrochronology? I'm a forest engineer, and I did my PhD in Switzerland in dendrochronology, which was taught at the Faculty of Biology, so I'm more a forest ecologist. And I did my PhD in Paneveggio Forest, where Stradivari was said to go and take the wood for the violins. That's how I started to hear this story. That's fantastic. And then I was involved as expert witness in some dating problems by a lawyer. And so I started 10 years ago to make my experience in this violin dating. It's not possible to tell where a violin came from, you know, its maker or its age by looking at the instrument, the way it was built, the varnish. Isn't there ways to just be an expert on this and know how old it is and where it came from? It is not possible in a definite way. It could be kind of interpretation, not basing on any scientific evidence. Mm-hmm. And so theories help in providing a scientific evidence. So someone might assume that a violin is by a particular maker or of a particular age, but there isn't really any way to know that without checking these kinds of details, like the tree rings? No, there is no way, because everything is based on the style, design, the varnish, and they all can suggest a craftsman, a violin maker, or a school, but only the tree rings allow the assessment of the year in which the last ring on the violin was built. This is where money comes in. Fake violins are worth a lot. Absolutely. There are so many violin makers making fake instruments and selling them as um, violin made by the old Italian schools of the 16th and 17th centuries. Some of these old, old violins are worth a lot more. An example you give in the paper, this violin sold for $16 million almost 10 years ago. It is uh, immense of such old violins. Comparing with, um, for example, with uh, violins made during 1800, there is a difference of 10 times, for example. 
let's get into how this works. Figuring out the age of wood requires counting rings, but also looking for patterns in the rings. Why are both important? Because only cross-dating different, cross-matching different ring width series, you can be sure that something is dated correctly. When you say cross-dating, this is basically you have a very old tree and then a somewhat younger tree. And so they'll share part of the same pattern because they grew in the same place and they are exposed to the same fluctuations and weather. So that way you can kind of line them all up and get a nice long timeline, right? Yes. And also in the same way, you can cross-date a violin. So the ring with series you measure on a violin, on the front, on the belly of a violin, with a ring with series measured using a living tree. Oh, a living tree. But the living tree should be old enough to go back at that time when the violin was made. You point out that you're going to look at the face or the belly of the violin. Is that the best place to look for dating? You wouldn't look on the back or some other part? We usually look at the bellies because these are made from a Norway spruce. And we do have long series of ringweed chronologies of Norway spruce. The back is often made from a maple, and we don't have long chronologies of maple. That's why I'm suggesting in this perspective, establishing longer chronologies also of maple. Oh, yeah. So then you could do the back and the front, and then you'd have a little bit of internal check there. Exactly. So do you have to know the location of the source of the wood in order to to use this approach to date a violin? Yes. And it is very difficult to know where during the 16th century the violin makers were taking the wood. There are many tales, legends, but no document. And that would be one field of research which would help a lot the dating of violins if we would know where was the wood, the timber coming from. When you look at a violin, there's a pattern on the face, but it's not necessarily a series of circles, and it's definitely not the whole width of a big old tree. How do you know which part of the trunk was used, where to start counting? We know how the tree was cut, and also the board was cut out of the tree stem. Oh, so you know the orientation. Yeah, but also looking at the rings, you can easily find, if you know how to do, the early wood, which is formed during the springtime, and you can see the late wood, which is formed during the summertime. The summer is coming after the springtime. That means that you can identify the right orientation of the ring. If it's been cut out, you have the earliest ring, but then the latest ring could be somewhere else. It's not going to necessarily be on the violin because it's a subset of the rings of the whole tree. That's absolutely a good question. And that's one of the limits of dendrochronology, because I can tell you only the terminus postquem. That means the year after which certainly the violin was made. 
but I can't say how many years later it was done. Also because the wood can also be stored for 20 years in a workshop. And I don't know how many rings are missing to reach the bark, so that the outermost bark. Mm-hmm. So you can say with certainty, it was definitely not made before this date, but it might be made some number of years afterwards because of how long it takes to make a violin or if they need to dry, age, and even store the wood. Yeah, and also usually the, the outermost part, the sapwood, is avoided by many violin makers, so you don't really know. Is there anything special about the wood used in those northern Italian violin makers' wood shops? There are many different theories, some of them very intriguing, like um, the theory which, according to which the narrow rings and regular rings uh, form are induced by the little ice age, which was characterizing the climate of this period of time during the uh, 16th century when Stadivari was, was making his violence. That's really fascinating, but it is not really proved. The most believed theory is that the varnish used by the old Italian schools was a secret recipe, but still there is no document, it's just, let's say, speculations. Certainly the wood used was selected to make violins, and it must be also some of higher, superior quality. What other ways, what other approaches are there to dating violins that can complement dendrochronology? It could be possible to do, for example, nowadays, some DNA analysis of the wood but obviously you don't want to, to take out a piece of wood from a Stradivari violin. It could be possible, for example, when restoring a violin, to get some small piece of wood and try to do the DNA. Also, we could use some radiocarbon or some more biochemical analysis, but usually it has not yet been done. So alongside dendrochronology, we could use DNA, radiocarbon dating, and maybe isotopic analysis to really get into the nitty gritty here. Yeah, sure. That would be the future. I saw that there was a thank you in your piece for, I think there's a a luthier in there, a musician, and a historian. I mean, this really points out all the different areas that this topic spans. How is it working with such a disparate group of people to to figure out what's happening? It's very nice because you learn really a lot. I learned a lot about making violins, which is not my field. And I learned a lot from the musician, who is a Berliner Philharmoniker, a viola player, and I learned a lot. And I learned a lot from the art expert. It is not always easy because obviously they have very different views. And so some points I had to find a good compromise For example, the violin maker was saying that you can't really say that Stradivari is sounding better than a modern. The viola player said, well, 
So do you mean that we are all foolish if Paganini and everybody wants to have a um, Stradivari? Because obviously having a Stradivari is also a prestige. So it's like a Maserati. Probably it's opening also doors of famous concert halls. So it's not easy, but I learned a lot. Thank you so much, Paolo. Thank you for your questions and have fun reading the paper. <laughs> Thank you. Paolo Carabini is a senior scientist in the Dendrosciences Research Group at the Swiss Federal Institute for Forest, Snow, and Landscape Research, WSL. You can find a link to the paper we discussed at science.org slash podcast. And if you listen all the way to the end of the show, you can hear part of Bach's Chacon, played by violinist Nicholas Kitchen on the Stradivari violin, Castel Barco, made in 1697. The recording is courtesy of the U.S. Library of Congress. Don't miss the next installment in our series on books at the intersection of race and science. This month, host Angela Saini talks with Alondra Nelson about her 2016 book, The Social Life of DNA. In an age in which we look to DNA to answer so many of our questions about who we are, what can genes meaningfully tell us about identity? I'm Angela Saini, science journalist and host of this series of podcasts looking at books on science and race. We're at episode three, and this month I'm joined by Alondra Nelson, a much celebrated scholar of science, technology, medicine and social inequality, and the Harold F. Linder Professor at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. She's also Deputy Director for Science and Society in the Office of Science and Technology Policy, although she's speaking here in a purely personal capacity. In 2016, after researching the growing trend among African Americans to use DNA ancestry testing to identify where their ancestors might have come from in Africa, she published The Social Life of DNA, Race, Reparations and Reconciliation After the Genome. The book makes Nelson's position clear from the start. She describes genes as the most essentialist and socially anemic conception of human identity. But for people whose cultural and family histories were erased by the brutality of slavery, what else is there? Where else can they go? That is one of the central themes of her book. Can DNA help people recover what is lost? Alondra, it's an honour to have you here. First of all, can you give us some background to your book and what prompted you to explore this subject in the first place? So where does this book begin? I was a graduate student finishing a dissertation on Black American health activism uh, around genetic disease. So I wrote about the Black Panther Party's sickle cell anemia campaign. And so I had spent the better part of the last decade thinking about African-Americans and genetics, thinking about race and DNA. And so coming out of that historical work into almost a kind of future-looking or future-oriented development and U.S. society, in which African-Americans were being, I think, hailed in a particular way as in some ways the ideal customer for these technologies that were answering questions about the past. The tension or one of the tensions in the book is between the beneficial uses of genetics to resolve injustice, for example, in tracing disappeared family members or solving crimes in which you know DNA is widely used to great success, 
but also its limitations in answering more fundamental questions about identity and belonging and who we are. How did you navigate that? I navigated it by switching methods, really. I mean, initially when I started doing this project, I was going to do surveys, actually. So I had, I would go to genealogy conventions and genetic meetings, genetics science meetings with a stack of surveys. And I had my pencils and I would get people to fill them out. And I realized, Angela, that kind of trying to understand for myself and then give voice to that paradox and those tensions required that I use a different method. And so it became an ethnographic project in which the answer to the question, the kind of high level question, how are people navigating these tensions and paradoxes? It went from being a question to a declaration. This is how people are navigating these tensions because people in their everyday life are trying to figure it out. You do make it quite clear very early in the book that you yourself appreciate the limitations of this, that people want more from these tests than they can actually offer. And what were the responses then you got from people who had these tests done and and were a little bit disappointed? I think by the time I got to the end of the book, and I try to capture this from the end of the book, and it wasn't clear to me at the beginning of the research, people can only ever be a little bit disappointed, right? I mean, I, I think that because what they're seeking in the test is so much more profound than some str markers or you know whatever they are seeking answers to big questions about life some of the disappointments that i write about are about how the different companies turn which is effectively to use the non-technical turn gobbledygook like to a non-scientist all of the markers are just a bunch of letters and numbers i mean they don't make any sense and so what i tried to do in the book was to to track the meaning-making practices around all these letters and numbers. Some of that happens on behalf of the customers, by customers. Some of it happens on behalf of the companies. Early conflicts or challenges for the consumers, the root seekers that I followed, were around the kind of test results they got back. So they went in with a question, where in Africa am I from? This sort of question that, as we would say in social science survey language, that many African-Americans are primed to ask because of, you know, a moment in the late 1970s, Alex Haley, many series, world bestseller book, there was this kind of expectation created in an aspiration that people could be able to answer those questions. You're, of course, referring to Roots, which is very well known in the US, may not be quite as well known outside the US. Yeah. So this is Roots, the, the book, Roots, the Saga of an American Family. Let me not digress too much, but I think to to, in the 1970s, tell a genealogical story back to Africa and call it a story of an American family was a kind of profound thing, right? It was kind of placing it right in the middle of the American story in ways that are now understood and expected, but I think that were arguably a little bit radical for that time. So people thought that they could find Kunta Kente and these sort of lineages of folks, uh, the genealogy of folks that Alex Haley wrote about. And that was the expectation. But when you get test results back that give you haplotype group L7 or, you know, mitochondrial DNA markers, this or that, or even that, I think in the early science, were truthful in telling the whole kind of mapping it could be from this. When you read the fine print often, even of a company like African Ancestry Incorporated, which is one of the ones that I followed most closely because it was one of the first U.S. companies, you know, it'll say there are these margins of error. It could also be these other ethnic groups. And folks want something definitive and they want something that 
is in the framework that they seek. And so sometimes that's ethnicity, sometimes that's quote unquote race. Sometimes people do want a haplotype group, but I found often that they didn't. And these would be, uh, as I write about one of the folks I followed, she would test again and again to get the kind of interpretation of the numbers and letters that she wanted for the narrative she was she was hoping to craft about her life and about her past. Right. So they're almost looking to the science to reinforce the stories they already had in their minds. Yes, yes, for sure. The approach you took, as well as being an ethnographic one, was also a very immersive one. So you became part of these genealogical efforts, as well as documenting them. How was that for you personally? So in ethnographic theory, there is the idea of the participant observer. And so by design, you're supposed to immerse yourself and also observe and that there is something to be gained you know, ethnography is deep rather than being wide. So you're not, you don't have an N of 20,000, but you are going deep, deep into the space. And part of that is the self-immersion, arguably. But I had my own reservations about this. Why would anybody put their DNA in a vial and put it in a FedEx envelope and send it to quite literal strangers? This is sort of 2003, right? I think now people have a better sense of that. And I guess I felt slightly more, and this is probably the security of privilege, but I felt slightly more, I think, secure in my Black identities. The thing that was so profound, Angela, in the interviews that I did were that people would be brought to tears telling me about how much of a looming, constant, aching, painful loss this felt for them. And I appreciate and feel that loss, but I didn't feel it in that way. I didn't, it didn't, well with me in the everyday experience in that same way. And so it just was not that interesting. I didn't know where my DNA was going to go. We used to call it, or others called it, the sort of book of life, the kind of early hype around the Human Genome Project. But it is maybe not the book of life, but it is data about you that is fairly permanent. Once you put it in databases or have it circulating in the world, you can't quite get it back in a kind of profound way. It's not like you know, in the UK and other places, you have the kind of right to be forgotten. You know, if a laboratory has your data, you have no idea where it'll end up, all of that. So I had my own reservations. And then I was becoming quickly one of the national experts on this phenomenon that people hadn't written about and actually, frankly, hadn't taken seriously. A lot of my colleagues, even in the social sciences, would be like, oh, this is snake oil and it's ridiculous. And I think those are, you know, one could support that point. But as a scholar, I wanted to understand why people were so invested in it and why it persisted over time. I ended up doing a public reveal amongst some of the folks that I had been studying and following around on a stage in a large hotel ballroom in Atlanta. And you know, the whole project is, I think, vexed and complicated and paradoxical. And that was a, a complicated moment for me because, you know, there was the expectation, this came late in my fieldwork. So we, this industry had been around for seven or eight or nine years. And I knew from the social cues what was expected of me. I was supposed to get the results and just be emotive in some way, like profound disappointment or profound elation. And as I write, I wanted to be honest about my experience, but I also didn't want to disappoint the crowd. And in the end, I got the crowd let me off the hook, really, because I got the results. I was told uh, I did a mitochondrial DNA 
test and the inference was to the Bamaleke people of Cameroon. And I just sort of stood there, but everyone else went crazy with like applause and cheering and all of that. And so the crowd really did the work for me. And then I remember stepping down from the stage and people were, it was quite profound actually, hugging me and patting me on the back and congratulating me. As a researcher, I was trying to be authentic in the moment, whatever that meant. And that meant a lot of different complicated things. And did that experience have any impact at all on how you thought about your identity? I have to say not really. I mean, certainly immediately it made me... So for example, I was more likely to check the news. So if I was skimming the New York Times and there was a story about Cameroon, I was more likely, I think, than before, although who knows, I don't have a control group and all of that of like my prior reading habits, but a story about Cameroon and Cameroonian politics was more likely to catch my eye. Where the impact was really, I think, more profound was in my family and my mother who took it up wholesale. It became, you know, I think is a part of her identity and she's built relationships. She actually called me last weekend and said, I'm here, you know, I'm, I come from a Catholic family. She said, I'm here with two seminarians from Cameroon. So the two priests in training from Cameroon who are here in the United States. And she said, what's our ethnic group? You know, she called out of the blue, apropos of nothing. And then I said, the inference was Bamaleke. And then she hung up. Clearly it was excitedly talking to the priests about Cameroon and, and being of the Bamaleke people. So... <laughs> One of the issues, of course, that people have with DNA ancestry testing is that the focus is so much on difference. You know, what discrete separate group do you belong to or what race do you belong to in some people's minds? What advice then finally would you give to scientists who want to look at genetic human difference but are wary of reigniting these flames of race, biological race being real? I would give the same advice to social scientists as to natural scientists, geneticists, and the like, which is to be clarion and forthright about the categories and their limitations. It's very common in sociology for there to be papers that say race and gender and the American workforce or whatever. And many times those papers are as guilty as some of the genomics and genetics research and like completely not defining what the categories mean at all. That means that the reader is left to fill in whatever they think that means. And then on the sort of output, when the reader or the press says, this paper says this, there's a lot of confusion. And so I think there's a real responsibility and an obligation to say, in this paper, we human geneticists are describing race to mean X. And to be very clear, the science doesn't just sit in libraries and dusty journals. I think what we saw over the last year and a half is that information is disseminated widely and that people read prepents and people read open access papers and will go from a New York Times or Washington Post story to the original article and read it and try to parse the data. And then whether or not the researchers offer qualification will then interpolate it to mean things in the world in that chain, researchers bear a particular responsibility. And I think that we've seen what happens. We've seen genetic ancestry testing mobilized into nationalist projects all over. So on the one hand, I do appreciate a perspective that says, let me do my science and I can't be bothered with what happens with handfuls of nationalists that want to take it up. On the other hand, there is an obligation to be as careful, as clarion, as clear about 
categories, about margins of error, about assumptions that people go go into how you know colleagues are weighting different markers and how they come up with their theories and their inferences about human difference. Alondra Nelson, thank you so much. It's been an honor. It's been my honor to speak with you, Angela. Thank you. And on that note, thank you at home. I just want to make clear for listeners that Dr. Nelson contributed to this podcast solely in her capacity as a professor at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. I'm Angela Saini, and I hope you'll join me for the fourth episode in this series one month from now. And that concludes this edition of The Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast. On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby and Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.